data storytellers. Today, another episode of the Data Storytellers podcast. It's one of my favorite iterations when we have a previous attendee on the show. Uh, and uh, one of my favorite attendees from one of our previous sessions is Scott, Scott Hall. So uh, we had some good conversations, I think, from our initial touch point, And then he contributed a lot of cool, unique perspectives over the masterclass. And I wanted to get him on the show and uh, immortalize some of the inspiration from the from the discussion. So first of all, Scott, welcome on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Good afternoon. Happy to be here. Excellent. So uh, maybe we can start with the, with the usual quick introduction. Um, in fact, why don't we start with how did you get into analytics? I don't know the question and don't know the answer to that question. I don't know if I asked you before. I don't think I have. So I would love to know how, how did you get into this, into this uh, exciting field? Yeah, it's interesting. The field of analytics can be very broad or very specific. And so I came at it by way of industrial engineering. So that's my, my uh, path there through school. And working for the mouse for, for many, many years uh, in industrial engineering, a lot of it revolved around using data to tell a story. So it's not just analyzing data, but again, helping it tell a story, whether that's charts or executive presentations or whatnot. And I found that that I enjoy that. I don't want to just turn out data all day, but I think analytics revolves around more than just doing the data and doing the analysis. But showing it, telling it as a story and helping craft the message to the audience. So as I was doing more of that at Disney and we'd have to go collect our own data or study a process or whatever we needed to improve a process, you need a data-driven recommendation. So then doing the analytics of the data. Um, and then now I'm much more into the bigger data, millions and billions of records, right? Not the hundreds of rows of data that you capture yourself manually on a process and uh, whether it's a hundred records or a hundred million records, it's, it's interesting, the analytics to get to, uh, to get to that story, to tell that the folks asking have either no idea how to do it, or they just in awe of what you do. So definitely enjoy that, that side of analytics. Okay. Awesome. And how did you see the, the industry evolve in that sense? So not just with the storytelling, but when did you get into like data analytics? I know that probably it's hard to identify like a, a, a a sharp barrier there. Uh, but how long have you been in the um, in the industry? Pretty much since I started. So 15 years ago at, at okay. Disney and industrial engineering is all about data, but the heavy data analytics and, and data processing, probably more within the last five years. So in the roles that I'm in and bigger corporate uh, corporation where I'm using a lot of our you know, big data sources. And again, not just the hundred or so records of data that I'm collecting manually from process. So, I mean, it's been 15 years from largely Excel and even maybe download some data via, uh, you know, a BI tool to get a data set to now a lot of SQL based queries and things like that directly against source databases. So kind of that evolution. And so me being involved for 15 years, we're really more in the, the hardcore data analytics, I would say for the past five or so, I'd, I'd say that's probably the the evolution that I've seen is things move so lightning fast and eventually you're just going to ask a bot to do it. But no, in, in seriousness, I do think that's that's some of the evolution is it seems like it gets easier, but it, it really doesn't. It just becomes more complex. What we have to do is analytics professionals, because it's not just here's a simple data set. I need to see a sum and an average, but there are so many ways to slice and dice and our senior execs are starting to see what others are doing and 
if I'm in another meeting where why don't we do AI or machine learning or all of these buzzwords, right? Used to be internet of things, now it's AI and it was big data. Now it's ML, right? Or whatever the, the case is. So that's the evolution I've seen. I think you have a lot of folks that are asking for the analytics and they understand the power of analytics, but they they sometimes don't understand what all it takes to get there. So you can't say, I wanna see X, Y, Z. Well, why can't I have that in an hour, right? You gotta scrub the data make sure what you're pulling is right and all of the various filters and criteria. And I think that's that's what I've seen a big journey of we're getting more and more and more every day, just data by the gigabytes, terabytes, petabytes or whatever there is now. But data is not information. And so us in the middle, are kind of those, those investigators, I would say, to turn that data into information that's usable via analytics and not just asking a chatbot to do it, right? Because there's only so much they can do. Mm, that's interesting that you mentioned this, just kind of putting things into perspective that yeah, at some point it was, you know, the buzz was big data, internet of things, and those things are still around, right? But it just kind of faded into, um, I guess, in, into the gray background, and now we're focusing on the on the on the new shiny thing, and that I feel like that this advancement of technology just keeps raising the stage, as you put it. To now, now you can do more, but it's almost like okay, now more is expected. So yes, you can you get to work on cooler and cooler challenges, uh, but the demands are are stronger and stronger as well. So for you guys, what are you working on now? What is your current mission? Yeah, so one of the interests is on the data front. So one of our missions, we have a, a lot of on-premise processing. So our own servers, our own databases, and we're going a lot into cloud computing. So it's for us, it's kind of revolutionary. There's still a lot of, I'll say, ruffled feathers around the business of kind of who moved my cheese. And hey, I own a server. I own everything about it versus this software as a service uh, that it, you have less control and you kind of pay per use there. So we're migrating a lot. It's a lot of change management as well as data change management to say, no, no, we're cloud first and look how much faster and more efficient we have all access to whatever kind of data we want and query the data in seconds. Whereas we lived a world for years where uh, if, if you got results in five minutes, that was a good day, right? And now if I don't get results in five seconds, I've probably written my query wrong. And so just the evolution there, but that's that's really the the transformation we're undergoing in the data and analytics spaces. Uh, we're holding off on a lot of the requests because we have to completely reset our baseline and our foundation, moving everything into the cloud. And uh, we've got some hiccups, right? Data quality, making sure we're pumping the data, the ETL pipelines, all of that good stuff. Uh, I got to get your house in order. That's part of the analytics transformation, kind of that garbage in, garbage out, right? I don't care how good an analytics model is, if your data is not 100% accurate, that's as good as you're gonna get. So those are the big things we're really working on as, as kind of a corporation on the data and analytics side is how to just reset so things like reporting and analytics become that much more efficient. Because again, we can always just chase our tail doing what we've always done, but if we pause, revolutionize and get items in the cloud, Again, reports that would take us eight weeks to develop could now be developed in, in eight hours, if, if not sooner, just being able to pull data. And so we're starting to see some of the, the benefits of that. And our clients are happy. The rest of the business is starting to get happy. We're in that prove it mode, right? We're, we're uh, getting the data there, but that's really the transformation we're undergoing is thinking cloud first. And I always try to get folks there, right? Uh, they're, they're, they're maybe not always there because again, it's less control, but it is for the greater good. 
Mm, so it's an interesting in, uh, distinction that you made that change management. We always say that that's the biggest challenge. Okay. Uh, and you said, okay, there's a lot of data change management and also just general change management, which I assume you, uh, you mean people, right? Engaging, yeah. engaging people. So can we just spend a little bit, a little bit of time on the, on the data change management side of things? And I know that again, there are overlaps, the whole thing is integrated. It's more like a, you know, holistic medicine, but, um, uh, at the same time, so, so what do you see as the biggest challenges with the data change management right now? So maybe a little bit on the technical side, maybe, if we can explore questions of governance, I'm just curious about your own approach to these, uh, right? And I'm sure that it will bleed into how to engage individuals. But uh, what do you find to be the bottlenecks right now in terms of data change management? And you got the opportunity to actually speak with a lot of your fellow practitioners. So maybe you can bring some of those insights into the conversation as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I apologize. I realized I didn't really get much about what I currently do. So I'm with... Uh travel and leisure. And so I'm, I'm a director of data intelligence. That's mm. what I call us. That's not my official title. It's data services, but who likes that? But uh, data intelligence. So I've got data governance, data engineering, um, also platform governance of this snowflake. We're, we're in snowflake in the cloud. And uh, so as part of data management and, and the way I see it, our, our big hurdle is really, I'm going to call it silos. So silos in the technology space of who really owns what. So as an example, uh, owning data governance, we also own data quality. So again, garbage in, garbage out, making sure the data that's in Snowflake is accurate and valid and matches what it should so that we can build models. But my team doesn't own the pipes to get it there. We don't own the ETL pipelines. So when we inspect and we notice there's a data quality issue by our data quality methods, it's a lot of hops and hoops and chains and tickets and emails and IMs just to try to, to try to get the data restored properly. And so, yeah, maybe that's part of process change management, but to me, that's all that, at least from our perspective, that's a lot of the data change as well is who owns the data today, who owns the processes today, getting the data in there. And once it's there, analyzing it, running the tools, getting the tools to actually analyze the data uh, is not bad, especially in the cloud, right? There's a whole, a whole suite of options that are out there, but so, I know I keep leading back into process and people, but um, really on the on the data change, it's it's that. So just getting the raw data there. Now, as far as how we transform that data, again, in silos, you have a lot of subject matter knowledge transformation logic embedded in a lot of various tools, and the our business analysts or even our partner analysts. They try to go analyze that data or understand, hey, I, I know what it is in the raw system or transactional system. I see how it is in my reporting layer, but I don't understand the hops that it took to get there. Good luck, right? Like the data availability and seeing the transformation logic even, right? It's so embedded three layers deep of silos to get it that my group is a mission of transforming that as well. The data and how it's transformed to where it should be an open playbook. I want anyone to see, here's five tables of data. Here's the joins that I use. Here's how I turn that into this beautiful data product. Why not have everybody be able to see all of that logic and not have it restricted and siloed to, no, 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 no. that's mine. That's mine, right? You don't touch it. So I think that's a, that's a lot of the data change uh, management there. I have so many questions around this. So um, you mentioned data quality. Again, it's a very hot topic. Um, and that's to be a little bit provocative um, um, with those touchy, touchy subjects as well. So for example, um, 
how good do you think the data quality needs to be? Again, it might be a, a, a big question, but you know, intentionally, I'm trying not to lead the witness too much. So how, how good the data quality do you think needs to be for a robust, effective analytics function to deliver value to the business? I have high standards. I it, to me, it has to be a hundred percent. If it's not a hundred percent, even if you say it's ninety nine point five percent, okay, there, there's certainly layers of okay. If it's an audit or if it's a financial system, you got to make sure everything's right, like to the penny. To mm. Wall Street and all of the auditors are all over you. If it's uh, you know a, a attribute like my my hair color, right? If I have a list of all my customers and their hair color and their eye color and their whatever. And I don't have those right. And you say my eyes are green when they're brown. Am I worried about that data quality? No. So I think it, it can certainly what sphere or what domain, but without having the controls in place to know what needs to be 100%, I'm going to say it needs to be 100%. 80% is not okay. Because what if you make an invalid business decision off of off of wrong data and even, even raw data or transformed data? So in a, law, in a large nutshell, I... I think data quality is one of the most important things. You can build whatever pretty analytics and data science and all of those models, but if the data is not right, I don't care what you do with it. Hmm. Okay, I love that. You know, we have different perspectives within the community on this one too. Because, um, for example, ban from Imperial Oil. I think it's going to come on the podcast as well. Um, I think in a month or so, and. Um, he always says, right, that um, data quality, the data needs to be good enough. Data quality needs to be good enough for you to do uh, uh, the, the analysis. So I guess um, I absolutely see where you're coming from. If you got to aim at the 100%, that should be the aspirational goal as well. But there are different philosophies in that. Now, uh, this is really interesting to me that you mentioned giving visibility to the business users on how you got the information. So from the data and ending up on that report, what happened in between. Now, again, if we look at different philosophies, you can think about, for example, Apple. And Apple likes to hide everything in the in the item. You can't open it, right? No, just look at what we're showing you. Of course, if you open it, it's very neat. You know, Steve Jobs was famous for making sure that everything is neat inside, but they were intentionally hiding things from the users. Now, there's a different philosophy, which is mind to open source. No, look into it, dive into it. Is this a data literacy subject, like actually training people to be able to even understand what's going on once you have the ability to show them? Uh, so so what is your take on that? Uh, do you think that this is an absolutely crucial thing so that everyone needs to be not just able to look into this, but also able to understand and read? And that's like what should be the goal of a data transformation leader to elevate everyone's understanding to to, to that point? A fantastic question. I'm I'm all on the, the transparency side. The books are open. Now, when I say how data literate should folks be, I think it depends on your role. I don't expect a CEO to sit there and understand how it got from A to B in his or A to Z in his report. Right? He doesn't have time and that's not what we're, he's getting paid for. But if you, what where, where I can see the concern with not having data literacy and transparency is you you pigeonhole such a small select group of people who know it that they become your bottleneck. That when that CEO does ask for analytics, it's gotta go through all of the depths of your technology folks to get to the person who knows. And maybe it is one person and heaven forbid he or she's not on vacation, right? That's the, the concern with this is 
To me, you be as data literate as you want. I'm going to open my playbook to you. I'm going to show you everything. If you want the training and you're you're in the business and you think, hey, I'm pretty I'm pretty good with this analytical stuff. Why not go and go and learn the data? Here's my data dictionary. Here's all the things that you could want. Now, of course, it's there's PII and if there's sensitive data or there's you know if we're talking outside of our corporation, yeah, I'm not going to expose if we've got trade secrets or. Part of our intellectual property is how we're transforming our data. Totally get it. But internally, for folks to do their self-service analytics, why not have the full playbook? If you can turn it around faster than I can, game on. Like, I'm not going to keep it just so you're forced to go to me and my team. You should want to go to my team because we're the experts of analytics. But you can do your own analytics as well. We just can do it faster and better. So that's a value proposition of a team like mine. More so come to us because you want it, right? The pull versus push. Instead of you have to come to my team because I'm the only source of, of data and analytics for you. Hmm. So how would you frame the value that you provide to the business? So you definitely don't want to be the bottleneck. You don't want to be the, the report vending machine, right? So how do you want the business to see your contribution and your value? Like where do you drive that uh, business value? And it's one thing what the business thinks or sees and what you want it to be, right? So maybe we can talk a little bit about that potential gap there. Yeah, I think that's right on. I think where where folks like mine, and sometimes I put that, that process improvement where you understand business person knows their world. And inside as analytics and technology, you understand a lot of the various swim lanes and the processes and how the systems and data interact, that where you come to me is not, to your point, I, I need a report, spit out a report, right? You can build your, I'll give you the fields, go build your own report. You come to me to say, hey, I need you to make the complex connections and understand that, okay, I wanna go target this kind of audience what am I not thinking of? And you're going to come to me to think about all of those things that you haven't thought of, because that's what I've spent my life and my team's life doing is how to best analyze the data and the touch points to get you the right kind of information. You're going to come to me to tell you a story. Tell me what you don't already know and what you can't get to yourself in a report. That's the value that my team brings. My team is not push a button, get a spit a report out. My team is ask me for things. I'm going to provide you analytics and stories that you never thought were even possible. Hmm. It's really cool because again, um, you know, our very logo, which I don't think it's probably like cut off. I need to like reposition it. The two hemispheres of the brain. So the right hemisphere, which, you know, probably like a neurosurgeon would say that I'm butchering the concept, but it's a functional concept, right? So it's like right side of the brain, the creative side of the brain, which deals with relationships, stories, uh, narratives. And then you have the left side, which is more logical numbers, statistics, you know, tech, uh, uh, abstract connections. And Basically, good communicators are very good at pulling information and data from one side into the other and vice versa, right? So it's very interesting. This is the first time I'm realizing that we always talk about how as a data leader, you need to, yes, of course, be a master of your, of your domain, but then turn like that data into information and into stories that will actually connect with people. But now you're also telling me that in the sense of becoming that trusted advisor, you want to be well positioned in the business. It also needs to go the other way. You need to turn those stories that people tell you about themselves and then translate it into what can I do for them and then provide based on that, that kind of value that they wouldn't be able to get anywhere else. So, totally. so basically if, if we look at that uh, and even if you go back to your time at Disney, how intentional 
were you a barrister? Hey, hello, we see Mickey Mouse is also part of the conversation. Uh, so uh, how intentional were you about storytelling? Was that something that you thought about uh, that you wanted to apply or it just came to be that you naturally gravitated towards, hey, this is something I need to develop in order to uh, like elevate my status as a, as a data practitioner? You know, it's interesting. So my my quick story there, because I actually thought about this the other day. So one of my first bosses at Disney, a guy by the name of Pete, love Pete. And uh, he, we when I, early on, I running analysis and we we were all about deck building, right? Putting out PowerPoint stuff, telling stories. But it, my mind was always, I've got my data, I've got my graph. I can put some bullets of here's the information in bullet form, go. And he and I would have some, fairly heated debates until the light bulb clicked that I even a, even think about a deck, a one pager. I was just putting the information out there, even in nice, pretty bullets, short bullet points. But I was never starting with any kind of background, never the, if somebody is reading this for the first time, what context do they need? I was just saying, here's the results. And so it finally clicked of the, no, that's part of telling the story is don't just tell me what you did. Tell me why you did it. Why do I care? Now, what are the results and what is the takeaway? So the work that you do, 95% of the work that you've done is probably less than half of the actual story. It's the context. It's the why. It's the why do I care? If I'm reading this, why do I care? Right? I'm, I'm not going to give you half an hour of my time. You maybe have half a minute. Convince me why I should care and keep reading. And then I'll read your, your summary if it's not too long. And then, and then tell me what I just read. And so that's where that clicked. And again, I... Thank Pete for that. It was enough tough conversations where I'm like, I'm not giving any background. That's right. Somebody reading this would have no clue what they're reading and they would just discard it. And then they would discard me as an analytics practitioner. So I think that's where you are the work that you put on, on paper. And so I think that's where that, that journey really started of it's not just analyzing data. It's telling the story about data and information. Hmm. Hmm. Now that you, uh, now that you shine a light on that from uh, from that angle, it was one of those recent realizations that we've had, of course, when you spend your time just thinking about stories, talking about stories, exploring storytelling, storytelling best practices, everything just kind of starts falling into place. You start to see the matrix. And like what you're telling me, a lot of a lot of times people, business users think that they want the information. Just give me the information, even though that's actually not what they want or what they would uh, pay attention to. This is why... Um, actually, if you think about online courses, they kind of self-serve, I'm just going to kind of buffet style thing. I'm just going to pay for the information, the, uh, consumption level and engagement percentage on those are like in the, it, it's less than 1% overall. No one actually cares about the information. What they care about are stories. So even when you think about even the masterclass, right, that we ran, and, and I, 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 we didn't build it this way, but this is what actually keeps providing people with value and this is what generates engagement and uh is when you actually put it in the context of a story of like we're going from point a to point b right it's like you know we're gonna go through different layers we're gonna see different things and you know something will happen it's like there's a beginning and a middle and an end to a story and then you know there's a sequel too but uh in that sense i see a lot of relevance with data practitioners because if you think about for example the case study from dave dave coughlin uh there's a another uh podcast coming out with him by the way probably will be released before this his case study was about uh user-centric design in analytics right and even that like what you ultimately want to do is create an experience and experience is 
something where you go from one point to the other, even a roller coaster, right? There's a, there's a start and an end. And once it's almost like a conceptual shift. So storytelling is not really about those isolated techniques, right? That's like the cherry on top. It's about thinking about the world and your craft in a different way. And once that clicks, then you become that trusted advisor. So that's an interesting question for me. Like, how do you think the business, the business right now, you can think about your business or maybe other businesses, how do they see still data analytics and data science? From their perspective, what is this thing? And how do you see that gap between actually what it is and and, and what it can provide? Like, where do you see that uh, uh, chasm really causing trouble for you guys? And uh, what were your what is your take on closing that gap and then uh, uh, really bringing closer together the vantage point of the business and the perspective that you guys have? Yeah, I think that's right on. I think I live that daily where the, the business partners that we provide kind of want just, that's great. Give me the data, right? I'll, I'll take it and run with it or I'll take the information versus that partnership. And so as you just described, it is exactly what I see out there. And even where, where I was before that there is that chasm between the, I'll say the geeky, the data, the analytics guys that they're talking, I don't even understand if I'm a business person thinking, I never understand what they're saying. So I'd rather they just give me the data and then I'll make sense of it. I, I think that how you bridge that gap is you definitely need folks on all end of the spectrum that are pure business. They're out there doing their business thing. I don't want them behind the scenes because that's not what they're good at, right? There's the whole strengths concept of what you're good at versus the folks that are perfect data behind the scenes. Everybody out there can probably picture someone where you're like, I don't want to ever want them in a meeting. And that's okay. You need those folks that are going to just brainiac out the most incredible models, but it's the folks in the middle that I feel like know enough about the brainy side, know enough about the business side. And I think those are those transformation leaders to your point of how to get over that, that chasm. They realize of, no, no, come to the table because I'm going to hear you. I'm going to hear what you say, Mr. and Ms. Business person. And I'm going to work with the right team, the folks behind the scenes to make that happen. So it's not you lob a grenade over the side, IT or the data folks pick it up, produce whatever model, send it back and hope that it's right. But it's those, those liaison practitioners that are helping see both sides. And that's how I, I see you, I see us bridging that gap because I sometimes see it growing where you got so many people getting entrenched on either entrenched on either side. Just give me the data or let me produce this pretty model. And it's let's work together to say, wow, I love this model and I love how you explained it to me. Here's more money. Here's more time. Here's more whatever. What else can you do for me? Like that's the whole prove it. I love it when it again back to my push versus pull. I should not have to be push and telling you. Maybe in the beginning, I got to sell my team and what we do. And then eventually you can't live without us. And so in, in one of our master classes in the, the group, we had a, uh, we were talking about centralized and decentralized and how the analytics kind of keeps flowing back and forth in a lot of organizations. And one of the things at Disney, when I was in industrial engineering, is you would, you would uh, prove your value so much that there'd be times where business was making a decision and I'd be in a room and they were like, we're not making a decision until we hear from an industrial engineering right? Like you were that trusted until they saw your one page or your deck that said, yes or no, this is a good idea. And here's why they didn't make the decision. So a lot of pressure, but a lot, you know, you've made it when it's that pull, they they want you to be that trusted advisor versus you always saying, Hey, Hey, here's me. Let me help. 
Right. Yeah, they rely on you. And I love how you uh, demonstrated like that kind of storytelling uh, while saying that it's not a grenade that we need to throw around. Like that's like tactical storytelling. It's like using that kind of image, which helps someone conceptualize. Now, what you said about, you know, you don't want to like push people, but sometimes it's necessary. So maybe that's a good segue for us to talk a little bit about governance. It's a very hot topic in the community right now. And you already alluded to how governance is ultimately a people and process problem. So First of all, from your perspective, your experience, also drawing from the conversations from, uh, you know, that you had with your peers, maybe on domestic class, what do you see as the biggest bottlenecks of functional governance right now? Maybe we can just pinpoint a few things. Yeah, functional governance from a process perspective, I think part of what I live every day is, I'm, again, process improvement, industry, I want things fast. So I get it. Nobody has, pa nobody has patience for process, Right. But process can be your best friend if it's done right, because when it's not done right, you end up with emails, IMs, oops, moments, and ahas. I hate oops and ahas. If you have proper governance in your process, I'm not even talking data governance, but process governance, that's where, yeah, it can elongate the process, but you're not going to get the slip-ups and the oops and the rollbacks and the aha moments because you thought through the checkboxes because that's part of the process. It's not, oh, I need X. Let me go rush and deliver X. And then I forgot about all of the other things that are that are now broken in the process or even to the point of, I forgot who had access to data or what they accessed or all of these controls and checkpoints that I need. So I think the biggest barrier to process today is back to the whole, you have folks that want things done yesterday. That's fine. And for certain things, self-service analytics. And again, that the, from the, from before, you should be able to go directly, you yourself, or go to your own people to get some of those quick answers. You don't need to lob the grenade. But when there's a process to follow to roll out analytics or roll out some new software even or some package, that's going to slow things down, but it's going to get done right. And I think at the end of the day, at least it's my camp, I'd rather do something right and take a little bit longer than rush to something that's half-baked and inaccurate and didn't go through the proper process and channels. Hmm. And how do you get these people actually engaged and bought into adopting that process, right? Again, I know it depends on, on, on the situation, but maybe some high level approach to how to make sure that they are properly motivated and maybe incentivized. I think so. Sometimes what's bad is good. You put your hand on a hot stove and you're like, I'm not going to do that again. But you, someone can tell you a hundred times, but until you do it. So probably some of the best cases I've seen are when it's gone wrong and there was no process. And we said, hey, you have how many after action reviews and all of the, let's not do this again. That's probably the best way to say, great, now let's strike while the iron's hot. Let's put a governance process in place. So that's some of the negative of living through it the wrong way. And then you get folks to realize, I'm not going to live that again. I'm with you. There's process. But without having that, I think it's kind of back to painting the picture. I had a conversation earlier today where I was like, I hear you. You think it's easy. You think it's just two minutes, but let me walk you through having the, the process brain. Let me walk you through some of the things that we need to think about before we can roll this out. Who needs access? What data? Is there a sensitive PII? Who's going to own this thing going forward? So when you kind of help, like I'm, 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 I'm with you. I want to get it out the door fast. I think it's that having that one-on-one -on -one that you, you can't have through an email chain, right? Mm -hmm. You can't have through IM. I don't care how virtual we get as a world. Like there will always be even virtual face-to-faces needed to help me 
help you see why you want there to be a process, right? Sometimes we over-engineer processes, but they can be our friend to make sure we've checked the appropriate boxes and got this stuff done right. You don't want to throw in things, although you sometimes can like, hey, if we don't follow this process, we might fail an audit or we have whatever risk with the auditors. Like nobody wants that. And sometimes they kind of clam up and say, okay, fine, right? I'll give you an extra week because we got to follow the process. So I know that while it's probably super tangible specifics, but I think that's at least what I've seen as far as when folks realize the need for a process, because even walking in them through, you realize what could happen if we don't follow the process, right? And they see, oh, yeah, okay, fine. Let's do it. No, that's really cool. That I didn't expect, by the way, that kind of uh, takeaway, but because we also spoke a lot about how you know innovation is about failing and failing fast. I see now failure having a whole other benefit that now I'm realizing that I'm actively using without my knowledge. So even in our team, a lot of, a lot of times, especially with like more junior uh, team members, of course, I want to give them visibility of how good looks like, but a lot of times I just know that they need to walk into an ambush, right? In order to now come out. And as you said, that, that, that's the stove equivalent, by the way, that happened to me like exactly that situation when I was like, Five. Yeah, 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 was, yeah, yeah, and and it just works. It just works, and it actually dives into even influence and persuasion psychology of the and even the most powerful stories they land if there's a pain that they address. That makes people care as well. So I never thought about it like a cool uh, governance, strategic, almost like semi-tactical uh, movie, just to let people maybe uh, feel the pain a little bit, right? And then this will position you better for the adoption of the process that's um that that's a really cool takeaway and then <clears throat> if we talk about data we already touched on data literacy so again this is a uh, something that's being thrown around all the time everyone wants the organization to become more data literate and there's a discussion around should we brand it as data literacy but people don't like to be called illiterate so rebrand it as data fluency and all that stuff so first of all where do you think that as a data science practitioner who wants to generate business value, where should they aim? Should, should they make sure that everyone in the business understands how a data lake works or they just need to be, you know, it's a, it's a strictly uh, a need to know basis. Uh, what What is your take on this? You know, it's an interesting question because as a data uh, practitioner, I think it's back to your people will sign up for classes and they're not engaged and they don't know it. I think if you're, if folks know they can get to it, I've got whatever data catalog, data literacy campaign, whatever it is. All right, fine. It's out there. I, I'm, I'm no longer upset that you didn't, that I can't get to my own data or my own transformation, but I don't need to know it. I trust you. I trust that if you've gone through all of this to make it available to me, then you know it, right? So the data practitioners that are saying, here, open the playbook. I got a perfect playbook. You assume that if I'm letting you show it, I'm probably the master at it. So I don't, I don't need to see all, I don't need to see that how the sausage is made, just make me make, show me beautiful uh, sausage and everything. So I think that's the, how I see it at least of, if I'm telling you, oh, it's so complicated. I don't want you to see, you know, I don't want you to be data literate and I'm with you. We get so hung up on wording these days, mm -hmm. find data fluent um, that, that I'm going to keep it all to myself. You're like, mm, but why can't I see it? Oh, okay, fine. You're gonna let me see it now. I trust you. It's weird. The more to me, the more you open up your books, the more folks trust that you're the master at it, and they don't want to see the books. They're just more so upset that you wouldn't let them see it. So that that's how I see getting folks to to trust you. And um, if they want to build their data literacy, that's great. But I found that again, more 
the more you to give them information, they're like, mm, no, you just do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hundred percent. And so, what are you now? So we, we talked about data quality, data governance, storytelling, engaging some of those uh, business stakeholders. Now, if we look to the future with new stuff coming out every single day, of course, we are uh, riding another wave of hype with generative language modeling like JetGPT. Um, how do you expect the field to change? What kind of opportunities and risks do you think will be most prevalent for data leaders in the next, it's even hard to think about these timelines, but maybe in the next you know, three to five years? Yeah, I think back to the self-service. So when you open up uh, the data literacy or data fluency campaigns, I think where folks in our uh, wheelhouse have a lot of opportunity is the models only know what you train them. So back to the whole, it's not Will Smith and AI and um, you know, iRobot and they're going to kill us one day. It's a good but, movie though. And then the book. Yeah, I, love them. I just, <laughs> I just watched it uh, last week. So. Uh, classic, classic. Yeah. Uh, but where can we best equip the AI or the, the generative um, language modeling to help the folks? So when I think back to, I want someone to be able to answer their easy business questions without having to come to me our folks can maybe help set that up, set up where, oh, here's the data structures in the model and kind of feed the generative model so that even if the CEO wants to say, how did my sales yesterday compare to my sales the day before? There it is, right? Like, oh, my analytics team built this for me. I didn't have to go to them to answer the question because that's going to take at least an hour or a day or whatever. I typed it in and we're helping feed the models and the data and behind the scenes, making sure data quality and all that is good. Now that's not gonna answer all their complex things like tell me who I should market to tomorrow or uh, tell me my EBITDA, maybe it can answer that. But that's where I see us working well kind of with the bots that are gonna take over is not an us versus them, but what are the things that, I don't wanna answer the easy stuff, right? I don't want my folks, my highly paid engineers sitting there comparing yesterday's sales to the day before. I want you building the models and the predictive models and building all of that that sexy stuff that maybe the robots can't build yet to answer those critical business questions. So that's where I see kind of leveraging um, the, the, the AI and, and where we're going with that. Plus there's the whole I've seen where it can generate like a hundred or thousand lines of code. So that's where you got to be careful as a generating the right things and you're checking it, but that could also be somewhere we're saving our time for the more advanced modeling. If some of the basic stuff or maybe your entry-level folks are generating uh, code by, by a model and not having to do it from scratch and write out every single line of code. So that's where I see that, that whole field going for us is keeping the easy stuff off of our plate. Why have your overpaid engineers answering easy questions? to handle the complex stuff and building those models of the future. Hmm, 100%. And I see this both in large businesses and smaller businesses as well. I mean, just from my experience, what it helps you do is to get to the creative problems quicker, right? So it builds the brick and mortar almost. And I think like innovation and real value happens at that, at, at, that, at that thin layer of how can I innovate here? How can I be creative to provide value in new ways. And you can just get there now really quickly. And even when I use, and I also encourage my team to, you know, I got them GPT plus and all that, not necessarily because they can use it immediately for their work, but now we can actually come up with tasks and problems where it's actually useful for them. And I can incentivize them to apply it that way. And uh, even with 
uh, ChatGPT and just creates a lot of the the raw materials for you to then work on. It doesn't save you that time. If you rely on ChatGPT, even for linguistic tasks, and that's what you only rely on, well, you're in for a rude awakening, right? Because it's not going to be what you're looking for. It's not going to be good enough, but you can get to not just good enough and great, but also excellent way quicker than before. So I don't even know what the domino effect of this will be, but it's certainly an exciting time and definitely an exciting time to be a data science analytics leader for sure. And, but just based on your uh, career and um, your experiences, if you reflect on what made you successful and maybe also reflecting on, you know, some of the pitfalls that you fell into and now learned from, like what would be your advice to aspiring data leaders of the, of the future? Yeah, that's a good question. I think uh, sometimes you have to to learn by failing and realize that this is going to get a uh, that that failure is not the worst thing. And you maybe had a presentation that went poorly, or you got so into the data and everyone glossed over, or you even had an error in in your data on screen. We've all been there, right? And you realize, oh my gosh, whether or not they they recognized it. Um, but the more that you have those at bats. The, the better it's going to be. So it may be your 10th at bat before you have that aha moment. I had how many at bats that probably went poorly. And so I think kind of the, the aspiring data professionals is get really good at data and analytics and the storytelling will come, but you have to make sure it's authentic. You have to, what is it? Talk the talk, but walk the walk. So if you can talk the data well, it's going to be really hard to talk the data well and even tell the story if you don't understand how to do the data. So you can't skip the steps. You got to start off if you're new from square one, understand how to analyze data, understand Excel and SQL and some of those basic fundamentals where you can have those at bats to tell the story and, and ask for those opportunities. So if you don't want to just be behind the scenes doing data all day, but you want to be in that liaison role, that storytelling role, that's where you ask for those opportunities. Ask for the stretch assignments and say, hey, I noticed my peer so-and-so got that. He or she swamped. Do you mind if maybe I help and you help and you you produce this beautiful analysis, tell the story, and then there's your at bat and you hit a home run. So that that's what I would say in a, a big nutshell is you got to walk the walk. You can't skip some steps and go and start telling a story when you don't understand the data or don't understand the structure of the data or how to analyze the data. So I think that's what um, hit me early on is, okay, I like this storytelling, but I also kind of like the data and the data processing and the data analytics as well. So it's the blend of both, but you got to have the foundation if you want to talk the talk. Mm, so just a follow-up uh, question on that. And maybe this is, uh, you know, the like flipping that question around data literacy and now putting it back on the, on the data team. So we talk a lot about how the business should know more about, you know, data, speak that language, use data-driven technologies and ways of working. And then we also talk about how, you need to be able to tell stories with data. It's not, not enough if you only know the technology. If not, it's not enough if you have a PhD in data science, if you can't at all connect with the business. So the same question that I had about data literacy, how data literate the organization should be. How good should data practitioners be at storytelling? Should every single uh, you know, coder and developer be a master uh, a storyteller or every team needs those uh, specialists who can do that? Uh, we actually looked at a, a data story from Jane Urban from Takeda on the masterclass, if you remember. She had the data execution role mm -hmm. that they built. So what is your take on that? 
Yeah, I think that's right on. I do not want uh, to each their own that has the strength, right? If everybody was a good talker and good in meetings, we're not going to get a lot of work done, right? So I want each of those teams to have a, a diverse mix of, again, you're going to have the person behind the scenes that probably isn't great in meetings and that's okay because that's not why I hired that person. So I think every group absolutely should have that who can represent them. And um, maybe you don't know all the answers in a meeting, but that's okay. You know, at least enough to speak to it and speak eloquently about it and then take the information back and answer the question. So absolutely. I think there, there's a, a spot for everybody and you can't, again, not everybody's good at everything, or maybe you're, you're mediocre at everything, but I want the folks that are great at certain things if you're great at storytelling and liaison, I don't want you behind the scenes running data analytics the entire time. Maybe you're leading the team doing the analytics and then the analytics folks and the engineers, there's plenty of folks that probably don't want to ever be in a meeting. Why am I going to force someone to go represent their information when there's probably somebody else who will raise their hand and gladly do it? So definitely think there's a liaison speaker role needed in, in all of the groups to be able to speak on behalf of the team and represent them well. Hmm. And again, to uh, reference uh, a conversation I had with Dave from CBS, and we had multiple, but uh, we talked a lot about the concept of skill stacking, that in fact, one great strategy for you as a professional, whether you're actually an entry-level professional or higher, higher level, is to, instead of seeking like outstanding excellence in one field, you should focus on getting good and maybe great in, in like one one dimension, but then good at three or four things at the same time and creating that unique angle through which you can provide unique value, right? So um, no, this was a great conversation. Uh, Scott, I really enjoyed it. We appreciate your contributions to the community that you've made so far and we're excited about exploring further avenues of, uh, you know, working together. Uh, there are some things cooking in the background and, um, and I'm sure our, our audience will, will know soon enough. Sounds good. Happy to be here. Thanks for the, thanks for the time.